Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Andrew Mason. Hello. Nate Hopkins. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Pete Holiday. Pete, do you want to say hi? Hello, everybody. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Pete Holiday. I am the director of engineering at a company called Samsara. And for the last uh, four or five years, I've been a little bit obsessed with how to interview software engineers. Nice. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. We were talking before, and you mentioned that you don't like any of the ways that the current state of interviewing goes. And and I heard a, a bit of rumbling in agreement. So do you want to kind of give us your basically where things are and, and where you think they could be better? Totally. Yeah. So I I think that if we if we look back into the history of, of interviewing, I think one of the things, or at least in the history of tech interviewing, one of the things that I notice is that smaller tech companies tend to follow larger tech companies. Uh, even though larger tech companies are solving for problems that smaller tech companies don't have. And I think everybody, uh, hopefully we're all familiar with the, uh, I think now discredited type of questions like how many tennis balls fit on a 747 or, or things like that that Google used to do and then everybody copied. And I think that that's a great sort of example of why maybe smaller companies shouldn't be following the leads of tech giants. Google has problems with hiring that, most of our companies uh, don't have, right? They have people beating down their door. They have a ton of inbound people wanting to work there. Uh, and they're also working on some of the hardest problems in computer science. So, so for at least some of their hires, they do need extremely smart people, top of the chart people. And I think that for most of our companies, we need good teammates, we need smart people, we need all of those things. But A, we don't have 100,000 inbound candidates every year. We are not working on the hardest problems in computer science. And so what we really need are people who are good at what they do, who are smart, who are good teammates, uh, and who can work well with the rest of their colleagues. And, and I don't think that a lot of the ways that we currently interview mesh well with that. And, and so what I'm seeing a lot in, in the industry right now is, so we've moved from those sort of like quiz questions and the uh, riddles and that kind of thing to this uh, live coding or very code-heavy interview practice. And, and the rationale that I get from people who really love this method is that they believe that it replicates the work that people do on a daily basis. I don't find that to be a convincing argument uh, because of the things that happen around an interview. There are power dynamics, there are nerves, there's anxiety around interviewing that just doesn't happen in your day-to-day job as often. And so uh, I think that that... In a perfect world, it would be nice if 
pair programming with somebody or giving them a take-home test would accurately, accurately replicate a work environment, but I just don't think that it does. And so I think that we have to consider that when we decide what techniques we're going to use to interview people. And so I tend to, uh, there are a couple of, couple of techniques that I like, and most of them involve just literally having a conversation with the candidate. Uh, but if somebody is going to use live coding as an interview technique, I think that the, the best way to do that is to give the candidate their choice of, a, of an array of, of methods. So do you want to pair program live at the onsite? Do you want to have a take-home test? Do you want to code here in our office, but we're going to give you an hour to do that before anybody comes in and talks to you? There are a lot of different ways that you can do it uh, to kind of give the candidate what makes them the most comfortable. Because at the end of the day, we both the interviewer and the candidate share a goal in an interview, right? And that's to see if this person is the right fit for this company. No good candidate wants to trick you into hiring them. And no company wants to hire somebody who, who can't do the job. So really, we're all on kind of the same team. And I, I think that, that that's really the, I don't know, that's kind of the summary uh, as, as I see the current landscape. And I think that one of the things that gets, gets glossed over a little bit is that interviewing is a skill. Uh, and it's a skill that most people do not naturally have and that most people do not re- acquire without lots of practice. And I think that we in, the, in, in tech tend to believe that well, we're good programmers, so therefore we should be able to identify good programmers easily. <laughs> um, and I just don't think that I just don't think that's true. And so, so I've I've spent a lot of time over the past four or five years, uh, really trying to figure out what is the, the the right path forward that is the most accessible to everybody and gets us the the, the lowest error rate when we're hiring. So that, that's kind of what I've been working on, and that's I guess a summary of my my somewhat strongly held opinions on the topic. I, yeah. I just think it's funny too the the assumption that everybody in the community makes. You mentioned, you know, everybody kind of does what the big boys do. And I'm just sitting there going, yeah, but the big boys don't have any more of a clue of what they're doing than the little, than the little guys, right? And, and it's so funny. Yeah, just everything you've summarized, I'm just sitting there going, yep, yep, yep. And, and then we wonder why it's still a crapshoot at the end of the day. After we put them through all this stuff, half the time people don't work out anyway. So then what? So I have some opinions on what you should be looking for in an interview because I used to interview a bunch of people for positions, for development positions. And really, it boils down to, is this person going to be a good fit for a team? And you have to have some kind of metric that you judge these people on because, I mean, at first, when you first get their resume, they're nothing but just a name on a sheet of paper. So, you know, how do you know they're going to mesh well with your team? So I have a basic idiom that I use or a basic metric. So is this person willing? Is this person capable? Is this person able? And essentially, if this person is willing to do the work to learn, to, you know, mesh with the team, then you can work with that. That person has a lot of future potential with the company. But if the person is not willing to be part of the team, they're not willing to adopt to practices that the project has, if they're not willing to get the work done within a reasonable time frame, then they could be the smartest and most capable person in the world. They could pass the coding interview or whatever technical part of the interview with flying colors, but I still won't hire them. 
because I need someone who is willing to do the work, who is willing to be a part of the team. So really, this if you are willing, but you're not capable, so more on the junior level, then I'll still likely hire you over a seasoned professional who is just stuck in their own ways and wanting to do things. Then you have a third component, which you really cannot hold accountable to the employee that you're hiring or the interviewee. And that is, are they able? And this third aspect, it's really what kind of crappy position have we put ourselves in today as a company that is requiring us to hire someone? So in reality, we should always be hiring junior developers. We shouldn't have a need to hire senior developers because that means that we have structured our team efficiently enough that we are able to get the work done. And as we see or project the ramp up for more work to come down the pipe, then we are able to bring on a junior developer to train them and to really mold them to our way of thinking and doing things. And you're able to accomplish a lot of these things through a series of questions and not necessarily a coding interview. I think coding interviews or whiteboard interviews are the absolute worst because you're only going to be able to identify like one of these three aspects. Yeah, it's funny that you uh, talk about it. One thing, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but the last time we had uh, DHH on the show, he talked about only hiring junior people that he could train to do things the way that they do things at Basecamp. And when I talk to companies, it's, it's interesting being in the position that I've been in for the last eight years doing Ruby Rogues. Uh, I have companies come to me and they basically say, I need to hire a senior developer. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you need? And, and this is where Dave is like light years ahead of most of these folks is I'm like, okay, well, what do you need? And they're like, well, we need a senior developer. And I'm like, okay, but what kind of senior developer? Well, a Rails developer. And I'm like, you have no idea what you need. You have no idea what you want. You have no idea what you're even aiming at. And so what you're doing is you're going to put a job listing up. You're going to get a flood of resumes in. You're going to pick somebody who demonstrates the highest technical prowess. And then you're going to hope they work out. And, and that's insane. I'm sorry, but it is. It's crazy. And so Dave's saying, look, you know, I care about the kind of output we're going to get from them. I care about how they fit into my team. I care about how, you know, all of the things that he outlined here, you know, he's, he's kind of broken down into attributes of the developer that he wants. And yeah, and that's what he's looking for is he's looking for their ability to get the job done and he's looking for their ability to fit well in the team. And, and he's, he's figured out what attributes make that up. Any employer's looking for somebody who will fit well and, and do good work. And so, you know, and, and I talked to him I'm like, well, why not hire a junior developer? Oh, well, the problem is, is we hire junior developers and after a year or two, they leave. And that's a completely different issue. That's retention, right? And it's okay, well, you know, you got to do what it takes to keep them happy, right? But yeah, it's, it's okay, what do I want? Like, what do I need? And, and every company is going to be different. Every company has a set of core values and something that they're trying to accomplish, even if they haven't codified it. And if you can codify that and you can figure out what you want, you want to figure out what kind of a team you want, then you can hire for that. And that makes a huge difference because then what you do is, you know, to, to the point that Dave and Pete have made already, is that then you go in and you go in asking questions, looking for specific things. And then if you get them to write some code and do some other things, then you get to the point where it's like, okay, they know enough to contribute. 
and they're going to fit well in the team in the way that I need. Yes. So I'm kind of a jerk in an interview from the perspective of I am trying to figure out what, how does this person fall under the three attributes? You know, the third one being able is that's a known. So we know, and that's going to be more on their technical aspect of what we are looking for. But I have a series of interview questions that I ask people and I'm not looking for the right answers. I'm looking for if they are able to have a conversation with me and if they're able to think critically and just to see their approach of how they would even go about trying to find the answer, you know, and saying like, well, I would have to Google it to first understand what that means. You know, I think that's perfectly acceptable because then they're going to be able to find their own answers to questions without coming and bugging me. But, you know, at some point, I want people to ask me questions. So, you know, when appropriate, I have a a list of like 40 questions that I ask people during an interview. And in reality, I only ever expect them to be able to accurately answer one or two questions. All the other questions, I'm really judging on how are you able to have a conversation? Or are you going to choke up and get stressed out completely over every single question? And then you just, you're not productive at all. So, you know, I understand that during interviews, like Pete said, you're going to have that additional thing of, you know, I'm interviewing for a job. This is my livelihood. I'm nervous. You know, this whole nervous or imposter syndrome stuff going on. One thing I want to add to that, as a junior who was just recently hired, the one thing my company does, which I think a lot more companies should do and would really benefit from, is if you're worried about hiring a junior developer, reach out to your local universities and offer an internship. You don't have to pay them an insane salary. Like a lot of internships are free anyway, but then you can get them in. You can see how they work. You can see if they can be a fit. You can already get some of that training that you would want them to have. And so by the time they're ready to graduate and they're looking for a job, they already know your practices. They already know the way, the direction you're trying to take. They already know what you want them to do. And they can be much more productive right out of the gate if you offer some sort of internship or apprenticeship or something along those lines. It's not as prevalent for whatever reason I find in the tech industry. And I think we would all benefit a lot more from just saying, hey, you're not going to be full time. You're still in school, but we're going to we'll be willing to train you. We'll take you under our belt. And you'll even if you don't choose to hire that person or that person chooses to go somewhere else, at least you get a your senior developers get some experience mentoring juniors and b you get to explore more of a wider variety and there's less of a cost that's a really that's a really good point i, I think that and and this this kind of ties into something uh that I, I i feel like it's an unpopular opinion but i don't know if it's an unpopular opinion in the way that uh that it's actually popular and uh, people just want to be edgy but i think that Tech companies often overestimate the value of technical skill and, excuse me, technical knowledge. If I'm comparing two candidates and and they are otherwise identical on paper, but one of them is less skilled technically, but seems like they would be a joy to work with. And the other one is more skilled technically, but seems like they kind of be hard to work with or might kind of be a jerk. I'm going to hire the less technically competent person every single time because I can teach technical skills. Technical skills are easy to teach. 
I don't have such a good track record teaching people how to be good colleagues. That, that seems like a, that seems like something that is much harder to convince people is important if they don't already value it. And I think that that's something that people who are a little bit earlier in their career, so apprenticeships or internships, you're, in some ways you're getting kind of a blank slate. Uh, like Andrew mentioned, they, you can kind of train them. Many people in that situation are willing to be coached on their, uh, on their sort of interpersonal skills, on their teamwork skills, um, that you, you might have a hard time convincing somebody who's been in the industry for 10, 15, 20 years that the way they're interacting with their team is, is not helpful. And, and I've found that to be the case less often when dealing with, with less experienced uh, developers. And so I, I definitely agree with that. The one thing that I'll, that I'll uh, kind of push back against, though, is I, I don't think any for-profit company should be doing internships that don't pay. I just, I don't think that's ethical. I, I think that it doesn't have to be, you know, a crazy six-figure salary, but if the person is doing work and you're using that work in your production systems, then you should probably be paying them, uh, you know. But that's, that's, just, that's just my take on that. I definitely agree. Uh, there are some I internships <laughs> that require you to be, it's not paid. So if it works out, and if like that's all kosher with the way the internship is set up through the university or whatever, then yeah, absolutely pay them. Like if they're going to be working for you, pay them. And kind of going along with that, if you're going to give someone a take home project or take home work that you may put into production or something, pay them for that too. Mm-hmm. So my take on this, it, it's a little bit different. As far as internships go, I mean, they're doing internships to get experience and they're going to get some value out of working for you anyway. So if you find somebody that will do it for free, good for you. If you can't, then you're going to have to pay them. And that's just life. Now, as far as giving somebody a take-home project, I almost always, when I hire people, I give them something that looks a whole lot like something that they're going to have to do for me for work. And it usually has some value for me. And I pay people for their examples, right? I pay people for their work. So it's like, look, this is going to be an eight-hour project. So, you know, I'm going to pay you, you know, a few hundred dollars. I mean, then essentially I can say, well, what you gave me wasn't worth a few hundred dollars. I'm not going to hire you. But the other thing is, is then I feel like if I'm asking for a significant amount of time, I should be paying for them or I should be paying them. So, so that's my take on that. But again, you know, if, if you can get it for free, I, I'm not going to be angry with you or say you're doing anything immoral by not doing that. I think one of the challenges, though, is that if, if uh, you know, that, that's, that I think is sort of the uh, let the market decide approach. Uh, I think that one of the challenges, though, is that if you're doing that, you are almost certainly biasing your candidate pool towards people who can afford to work for free, uh, which is naturally going to bias your candidate pool in both, both along racial and gender lines that might not be uh, aligned with your company's values. It might, it might not, uh, but it, it's worth thinking about the, the privilege that comes from being able to take a free internship because many people can't. Uh, and so those people are just straight out of your process right away. Um, and they may in fact be better developers than the people that are willing to work for free. They might not, they might. So that's, that's another argument in favor of, of, of paying for internships, but certainly that's a, that's something that every, every company can kind of, uh, you know, decide the, the merits of on their own, I suppose. Well, and yeah. the thing that you said that is the big kicker there is that if it aligns with your values, Right. So, and, and that's ultimately what you're looking for anyway, is you're looking for somebody that fits well, that, you know, buys into the vision, that, that will contribute, you know, to the mission, you know, that, that has the same values as the rest of your company. And if, if you can't find that person, then there's going to be some pain because there's going to be a disconnect there. 
And I think that's the kicker, right? So if, if it fits within your values and you can find somebody and you don't have to pay them for the sample project they put together, great. You know, you're, you're looking at people that, that fit well with you. And yeah, you may be tainting your, your, uh, your pool of potential hires. And you need to think about that as well. I'm very interested in the outcomes more than I'm interested necessarily in the process. And so if the process, this isn't a blanket, the ends justify the means, but it is think about this, you know, how does this fit with your mission, vision values? And, you know, what kind of an outcome is it going to give you if you make these decisions? Yeah. And basically, if a intern who is not getting paid for their work is working on a production application, then they need to be paid. If they are working on internal utilities or if they are doing busy work, just kind of shadowing and learning, then I think it's okay to find some free interns. But if anything gets shipped to production that a client will see that an intern is doing, then they need to be paid. That's where I kind of draw the black and white line. And I think it's interesting to, to call back to Andrew's uh, statement. I think he was alluding to uh, sort of university-sponsored internships where they're getting credit. The interesting thing about those usually, and I guess it varies from university to university, but typically those internships, first of all, the, the uh, student is being compensated. They're being compensated in the form of university credit. Those students are also typically eligible for financial aid during those, those internships. And so it's not that they're having to work for free. They might just have to take out some loans, which is a completely different um, ball of yarn that we might not want to get into. But the other kind of aspect is that most of those programs uh, require oversight and training. So there, there are some additional requirements and additional hoops that the, the employer might have to jump through to validate to the university that this is actually an internship and not just sort of a work release program um, or a work study program, rather. And, and, and that, I think, is a different way of compensating somebody uh, that, might, that might kind of meet all of those goals if you're willing to spend a little bit of time jumping through those hoops and providing that very rigorous training for the, for the intern. Um, that can be valuable for them, too. I kind of want to circle that because we're kind of talking about work arrangements now instead of interviews. And I, I want to talk a little bit more. I, I think it's important to understand the work arrangements that you're going to make, right? And what you're hiring for. And that way you can do the interview to get that information. But given certain circumstances, how do you know what to ask? How do you know how to evaluate people? Like, do you, do you make a list? I mean, Dave has a list, right? He has those three things. You know, do you make a list of the things that you're looking for and then just kind of score them? Or do you hire by gut? Or I mean, what 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 uh, metrics do you all use when you're hiring people? <laughs> Ultimately, it's so subjective. It is. It really is. <laughs> but how do you justify the hire then, Dave? So really, I'll open up with a question of something like, what are your three non-standard gems that you swear by? And just asking that question alone, if someone says something like, devise pundit and you know maybe like friendly id then i know that they are using just really maintained gems that are well thought out and has a lot of community support but if they start saying something especially today with webpacker and a lot of alternatives they start saying like well bootstrap sass and some other things that i'm going to start questioning like does this person just throw whatever gem into their project just because it solves a very small or minute thing? You know, kind of taking back to the whole left pad issue of 
what happens if this gym becomes unmaintained or is yanked and it's no longer available? Now you have technical debt in your application. So I really see any kind of gym you add into your application as a form of technical debt because it can and will rear its ugly head one day if it disappears. But just that simple question, it's a very easy one for someone to answer because especially if they are doing Rails development, it's something that they are familiar with and know. So that's kind of one of the things where you know they'll start earning ticks on my little list of attributes. I want to push back on that a little bit. If it's a senior developer, a mid-level developer, I think that's, I totally agree with you. But if it's a junior person you're interviewing, uh, a lot of the tutorials and things online, like when I was first starting out, a lot of them used gems like that because they wanted to get you up fast. So if I didn't know better, if I had only been taking online tutorials and hadn't been exposed to like production applications, then yeah, I might say something like bootstrap SAS. And I don't think you should fault them for that if that's all they know. Yeah, and you know, the list of questions has to be targeted to the person you're interviewing. So I might only get through, you know, a third of these questions that I would ask someone. You know, another, you know, relatively simple one, how would you handle a long-running process? That one gets a bit more conversational because you always have the standard de facto answer, well, I would throw it into a background job. Well, does the interview person even know that? Are they familiar with background jobs? And again, it's going to have to be based on what position are they applying for? You know, what is your need? That's that's interesting. So uh, my approach for interview questions is to start from the traits or attributes that I know a candidate needs to have to be successful at the company and then design interview questions to pull those things out. And, And that's not to say that I think that most interview questions can be reasonable for a certain set of attributes. Those questions that you're talking about seem to me to be a little bit more knowledge-based, which is totally fine. And I think that uh, one of the trade-offs that you make in those situations is you might get a less talented engineer who just happens to know the things that you're asking about, whereas you, if you have a different set of questions that are more skills-based, or sort of uh, logic and reasoning based, you might get a developer that needs a little bit more work learning about cues and background jobs, but they might have a higher ceiling. And and there's not, and that's not necessarily, that's just a trade-off, right? You might have, a company might very easily have a role where they literally, they need somebody who lives and breathes background jobs because this person is coming in to be the team lead, is the team that manages all the background jobs, and that's not something they can spend time getting up to speed on, they need to know it. And that's totally fine. But I, I think that my, my strategy tends to be start with the list of things that you know you need, come up with a list of nice-to-haves, and then design questions specifically to address those points. And you know, a company that needs somebody with a lot of specific knowledge around certain things is going to have a much different set of questions than a company that just needs, we just need a developer. We need, they, can, they can spend some time to learn and get up to speed and that's fine naturally those two interview processes should look very different uh, because you need two different things. Yeah, I I give the advice that Pete basically gave. And I've had a number of, like I said, uh, companies come to me and, you know, once I help them figure out what they want, then what, yeah, then what I do is I essentially 
you know, tell them to go get involved in communities where they can find people that are, that, you know, do those things or know those things, or they can find out if people know those things or do those things, you know, and, and some of the things that you're going to want them to know or have, as we've talked about before, are specific, you know, attributes, values, things that line up with the company. And some of those things are going to be technical skills, but you can go and you can have conversations with people and kind of cherry pick from the users groups and other places. And, and that's a much better way to hire than to put your job listing out and then pray that the right person finds it. And then when you do the interview, you've already kind of half vetted them, vetted them already. And then you can get in and get to know them a little bit better and just kind of be able to either rule them in or rule them out as best you can. I've got a couple of questions I wanted to ask Pete. Uh, can you give us some concrete examples of that interview style so that the listeners could have a, a, an idea of, of what to expect in that type of an interview? Absolutely. So uh, the interview process that I designed at my last company focused heavily on uh, what I, what I, and I guess other people call a system design problem. And so we tested most of our technical skills through just a one-on-one discussion about how would you build a social media, specific social media tool? Like how would you build Facebook? The way that that question progresses, one of the really nice things about it is you can meet people where they are. So somebody like Andrew mentioned who is new and just getting started and didn't have a lot of production experience, had done some tutorials, you're probably going to spend a lot of time talking about very basic database design, very basic CRUD interactions. How does the controller interact with the, with the view and how do things get rendered? Whereas a senior engineer who has a lot of production experience is going to zoom right past that. They're going to take care of all of that in two sentences. And then you're going to get into something more complicated, like, well, how, how does privacy work in this application? Or how does, uh, you know, if you're talking about, say, Twitter, how do retweets work? Uh, how, do we, how do we model that? And how do we implement it? And, you know, how do we decide, you know, if, if I'm following Charles and Nate and Andrew and, and Dave, if I'm following all four of you, and all four of you retweet the same thing over the course of a month, how do I know when it comes back up in my timeline? So you can get in any of these larger systems, you can get very, very deep, very, very quickly. And you can almost always push somebody to their point of, I don't know. And I think that's really important to be able to get someone there. And if you can start your, your technical interview at a, I don't want to say a low enough level, but at sort of a, a baseline level, you'll be able to capture both what a more inexperienced and entry-level developer might know and be able to let them kind of flex their muscles a little bit. But then you'll also be able to get very quickly through to, you know, a senior staff level position where you're talking about operational concerns and SLOs and reliability and failovers and all of that. You can, you can, you can design an interview process to get through all of that in 20 or 30 minutes. And that uh, maybe 45, if you really have somebody senior, and that leaves a lot of time for you to, to spend talking about, you know, I, I like to then start talking about, uh, you know, how do you work best? What kinds of teams do you work best on? Um, you know, tell me about a time that you had a conflict at work and how did you resolve it? One of the things, this is maybe giving away, giving away a secret, I guess, but one of the things uh, that I really like to do in any of those questions where you ask somebody to tell you about a time where something went wrong is to always kind of ask the person if they don't mention it. And what could you have done differently in that situation to make it better? Uh, because a lot of people will naturally sort of, the, we, we all have this bias to think that what we did was right and the problems have come from external sources. And so uh, being able to sort of flip that around and ask somebody directly like, hey, what, what, would you, what could you have done differently in that situation to have a positive impact on it? 
you get a you get a feel for how introspective the person is and how uh, how able they are to recognize their own contributions to a kind of a bad situation. So that was that was kind of a, a wide ranging answer. But I, I think that with an experienced interviewer and a, a question that is designed to allow um, sort of a variable difficulty level, you can get there pretty quickly. And one of the things that I'll say is that's extremely difficult to do in my experience with coding questions. It is extremely difficult to uh, provide a coding question that doesn't take a ton of time that is difficult for a senior engineer and also isn't susceptible to being leaked onto Glassdoor and then ruins your whole question. So the nice thing about sort of a system design is it's, it's, it can be fluid. And so if somebody posts that system design question to Glassdoor and somebody comes up with a, a rote answer for it and you get the idea that, okay, they've already thought, they already have read online how retweets should work there are a bunch of other things you can add in there, right? Like, well, how do we edit tweets? And how do we, you know, how do we do any of these other things? So that's the style that I prefer. I think there, there's also a trade-off there. Um, there's the possibility that if you, uh, you could make a mistake and hire somebody that talks a good game but can't actually code. I've not experienced that uh, ever, but it's theoretically possible. Um, I, I've uh, actually experienced that um, where you get somebody that can talk a, a great game and then it's not that they couldn't code, but when, I don't know, just the team dynamic or, or something was off and they were just unable to deliver. They just couldn't ship. Yeah. I also want to chime in and just give another version of the question that Pete was asking as far as like, you know, how would you build this or how would you do this? Um, I, I like to work off of people's resumes because if they've done something already, they can do it again, right? Or at least that's the theory. And so I tend to also ask, you know, when you built this, right? And so if you're new or new-ish, put some of your, you know, sample projects or things that you did to learn on your resume and some of the things that you did to build it. Because I, I really like digging into that. How did you put together blah, blah, blah? What was it like working with Library X to get blah, blah feature into XYZ? Because then I can start to figure in how you think And I'm totally okay with the answer of, well, I worked through this tutorial and that's kind of what they showed us how to do. Okay, well, what did you think about that approach? Is there another approach that you would like to have? And I can kind of poke at that and kind of see, again, not just the the range of your knowledge, but then I can also figure out how do you think about these problems? You know, do you think deeply about, oh, was there a better way to do this Or, or, or those kinds of things? Because as we've kind of alluded to over and over again, or actually said outright over and over again, it really comes down to what is it going to be like to bring you on board, show you what we're doing, and then get you productive really as quickly as possible. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point there, Chuck, is that if someone puts something on their resume, it is fair game to drill into. You know, don't put SQL, C++, C Sharp, .NET, like all these fancy keywords on your resume if you only have heard of them and not have worked in them. So, you know, that's kind of one of my pet peeves is reading the resumes. Number one, if your resume does not fit on a single sheet of paper front and back, all excess sheets of paper are discarded because I'm working I don't have time to literally read through a 10-page front and back resume. You know, I've had those submitted to me before, and it was way too much to read through to just get an understanding of, you know, one, this person's already failed. Are they able to communicate clearly and concisely? 
Are they able to get their point across without telling me a huge long story? And if you can't do that, then you have communication skill problems. And so your resume is one of your very first indications of clear and concise communication. Sometimes there's gatekeepers, though, that are a little less knowledgeable about what the job requirements actually are, right? You have to get past an HR department that's just looking for those buzzwords. And sometimes you have to get them on the resume just so you can get past that point and then, and then maybe address those things in the interview, right? Yeah, but even then, just, you know, be at least familiar with the technology if you're going to put it on there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you, you, you do not want to lie on your CV. I, I agree with that, Nate. I think that, that uh, and it, it sort of also depends, and, and this, I think, expects candidates to be a little bit more savvy than, uh, than they really uh, should need to be in order to get a job. But, you know, especially if you're dealing with larger organizations or government organizations, that initial filter can sometimes be automated. It's not even always a human. Uh, if you don't have the right keywords, then you just don't get past that filter. And I, I think that a nice compromise here is to sort of rate the level of competency along with the keyword, right? So saying like, oh, I have introductory knowledge of SQL versus like I'm an expert at C++, you know, that at least gives the interviewer a hint that like, okay, you probably want to dig into the C++ and the SQL knowledge is not that big of a deal. They'll probably be able to work with it if they run into it, but we're not going to ask them to sort of be a DBA, I guess. So that, that I think is a good compromise, but I, you know, uh, and I think that the length of the resume is also kind of interesting. I am, I'm certainly open to getting longer resumes as long as they are organized in a way that if I stop reading at some point, I got the most important stuff. You know, if, if somebody wants to go into extreme detail about some projects they did eight years ago on the fourth page of their resume, okay, I can, I can throw that away pretty easily as long as they have the most important stuff up front. Uh, you know, and if they're not doing that, then that's certainly a communication problem, Dave, like you alluded to, or like you outright said. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I should just pay you guys to sell my book. I, I wrote a book on how to find a job, <laughs> how to find your dream developer job. And one of the big things is doing the research, right? Finding out what these people want, what they're looking for, and then finding unconventional ways to get in front of them. But sometimes the only thing you can do is send in your resume. And yeah, I will also put forward that when Dave and Pete say read the resume, what they mean is they scan the resume. They know what they're looking for. And so they're kind of looking for those things to pop out at them. They're not, they're not going in for a deep read and then going to verify everything. They're, they're going to gloss through it once, maybe twice. And then they're either going to call you for an interview or throw it away. And so, yeah, you know, you put the information in, you, you, you do the best you can to represent what, what they're looking for. If you've done your homework, you should know some of that. And then you can come into the interview, you can speak to the things that they directly care about. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash rogues. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. What's interesting to me is how bad companies are at prioritizing 
this aspect of the business. Like it's always an afterthought, it seems. And that's okay. It's not expensive if you hire the wrong person at all. <laughs> or it won't, you get the you, right? it won't cost your employees yeah. anything either. Like they're so, talking. yeah, I've got a couple of interesting thoughts on this. Um, one, uh, just based on the conversation that I've heard so far, and that is diversity is important on a team, especially as the, the business grows, right? I think initially at a startup level, it, you know, having a lot of cohesion on the team is, is really helpful. But at, at the same time, getting you know, different backgrounds, getting different experience, getting different opinions on the team can actually build some real robustness to the team. However, an early startup may not be able to afford that initially. So I think at some point, a company has to kind of transition. So one question I've got is, is how do you guard against, because we're talking about how intuitive our judgment is on these interview questions. How do you guard against just hiring somebody that's like myself, right? That, that just kind of resonates like, oh, this seems like a, a good person, their background or their thinking around these things is very similar to myself and guard against just completely discounting or, or, or casting aside a difference of opinion or a difference of approach, because sometimes that's very valuable to a team. The other question that I post to the group is, uh, we, and, and this has been my experience as well, where junior developers are much more malleable in terms of you know, team integration and, and kind of building that cohesion that I just mentioned. And so that's why it's appealing, I think, for some companies, especially companies that are, are are playing the long game where I'm, a, I'm good. I'm okay actually investing in this junior developer and raising them up into this team. The problem is that junior developers uh, eventually going to have far more skills and be adding much more value than, than what we initially hired them for faster than most other career tracks at the, at the company. And, but the HR department is, is, is typically not ready you know, to say, oh, well, 12 months has passed, let's bump them 25% in salary. They have to job hop to go get that, right? And so companies that are playing the long game and kind of understand the value uh, that's coming can maybe deal with that. And so there's a, a bit of a built-in prejudice against the junior because of that, the, because the company's not looking at it in terms of a long-term hire. And it's kind of understood within the industry that this person's going to have to jump ship to go earn the additional amount of money. And that may be, you know, a year or two years down the road that that happens. And so the other question is with the seniors, we actually talked about how oftentimes seniors can be set in their way. The, the cohesion with the team may be off, that sort of thing. So how do you guard against uh, ageism? As people get older and kind of and maybe maybe set in their ways or may, and they may be set in their ways for a good reason, right? And so how do you how do you remain open to all of that uh, in the interview? I, I just kind of opened a big Pandora's box, but I'll let anybody respond. <laughs> My boss had the perfect plan for salary raises. I got back from RailsConf and he pulled me into his office and gave me a raise. So I think definitely. I think that the whole like, okay, you've been here this amount of time, it's time to give you a raise thing is pretty garbage in my opinion. Like you should give people, I'm very much in favor of merit-based pay increases or simply if it's been a while, I think another thing is on the developer. Like if it's been a while and you feel like you have brought to the table 
that, I mean, I think that's the other thing too. Are you worth the money you think you want or are you jumping ship in the hopes of like your initial salary will be higher, but like, are you really worth that? Or are you just, they don't know you as well and they're going to give it to you. I think a big thing is sitting down and just having a conversation with your superior and be like, look, like I said, it shouldn't be based on time. Like I've been putting in so much work. My skills have increased. Like I've contributed this project these ways. And I think that I deserve a raise. Can we have an open discussion about that? And if you don't think I do, tell me what I can do so that I can get there. I agree with that. I, I, I also think that some of this is a sort of a systemic and, and to Nate, to address your uh, kind of question as well, uh, I think one really clever approach is uh, we all sort of instinctively understand that as somebody moves up the ladder from junior to mid to senior to staff to principal to senior principal or whatever ends up off beyond that, is that each successive step tends to take longer and longer and longer to make because you sort of reach the point of diminishing returns. There are fewer opportunities to flex those muscles, um, especially at smaller and medium-sized companies. But we tend to stop at a certain point making the actual job levels smaller. And so I think a really clever approach, and it's one that, one that my current company takes, and this is kind of where I picked it up, is expecting having a large number of levels at early stages and, and very, very clear delineations of what it means to be a software engineer one versus two versus three versus four. And then you don't have to worry about, oh, it's been nine months, we don't want to give, you know, Sally a, a 25% raise. If Sally has demonstrated that she has moved some from software engineer two to software engineer three, and the salary bands that you have set out for software engineer two and software engineer three necessitate a 25% raise, then HR, I mean, I don't want to say their hands are tied, but you have established a system by which, you know, if you just expect that people during a normal progression will only spend a year to 18 months in each of these early levels, you're giving earlier career devs, first of all, you're helping them accelerate because they know what to do and know what to aim for. But you're also giving them that growth that Nate kind of called out is really difficult to find. You know, if you, if you promote an early career dev in their first 12 to 18 months, you gain a lot of loyalty right off the bat because they, they understand that you understand what they need to, to, to have to grow in their career. But all of that sort of goes back to uh, I think the hiring question and the interviewing question, and it's the same sort of strategy, right? You have to know what each level requires. Uh, and that's the same as when you're hiring, as when you're promoting. What does it take to be successful at a software engineer three level? Or what does it take to be successful as a senior engineer at this company? And if you have those things, uh, and this is kind of also going to hopefully tie back in Nate's first question, which, is, which was, you know, how do you avoid just gut-based hiring? causing sort of bias issues is if you have that list of traits and skills that you know you're looking for in an interview, you know, lots of companies now use these hiring systems that, you know, you put the interviews in them and they have scorecards around them. Um, But even if they don't, having everybody sit down with a standard form after they interview somebody that asks the questions directly about those traits. Does this person seem like they'd be good to work with? Do they have knowledge of cues? Do they like, and just, you know, very not, you know, you can have free form, but also have some very yes or no, or, you know, one to five type questions that can kind of cut through some of the bias uh, where, where you don't have a great feeling about somebody, but you check yes on all of the things that we say we, we require that at least causes you to go back and think about why do I have a negative feeling about this person? And is it anything I can sort of put words to? 
But if you do that same approach to your leveling system and your, your, your salary bands, you can avoid the, the problem that Andrew mentioned, which and, and Nate mentioned with not being able to promote people enough early in their career when they need that growth. Okay, I have to ask then. So you have this structure, right? You have, you know, software developer one, two, three, four, eight, nine, you know, whatever, whatever you decide, right? How do you measure the output, the quality, the whatever, right? Because this is something that I've run into for a long time is, you know, how do I evaluate how good a developer somebody is, right? Because there are a lot of sort of hard to measure things that, at least in my head, go into it, like how clean their code is and how maintainable it is and stuff like that. So, so, you know, what do you base, what metrics do you use to measure this to say, okay, you know, because is it the number of stories? Okay, well, I'm going to go work on a bazillion little stories. Okay, is it the complexity of the stories? Well, then I'm going to go grab one of the hairy ones, you know. And so how do you make it based on, you know, the, the value they bring to the company as opposed to how well they play the game? One thing I just want to add on to that real quick. I mean, I don't have an answer, but when I was at RailsConf, every time someone said that they were hiring, like in the exhibition hall, I was like, okay, what are you, what position are you hiring for? And most of them said intermediate or senior. And I'd be like, okay, what's an intermediate developer? And the stutters and the, the nervous. <laughs> I know, right? They were like, uh, uh, I was like, because I kind of considered myself to be junior, but you know, some people might consider me to be intermediate. How can I base that? Or how, maybe I'm a rock star and I'm a senior, but I've only been doing it for a year. Like, and there, I didn't get any answers. <laughs> yeah, I have a story on this particular point. And uh, Nate and I actually worked together when this happened. But uh, my very first development job, Nate actually interviewed me. And then they hired me. And I was with them for a couple months. And I was immediately promoted to senior software developer. And it had everything to do with, you can bill more for a senior software developer. Because we work for a consultant, consulting agency, right? And so they just billed me out. And, uh, you know, as long as I could either talk the talk to get the gig or I had enough experience on my resume, it didn't matter. But the billing rate was higher. And so, you know, yeah, everybody kind of defines it differently and uses it to their advantage depending on what their situation was. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to look out for yourself. So when I have a job, I always try to find what is the next step? Where's my progression or my career path? And then find the job description for that specific job. And what I'll do is I'll keep a OneNote document or a markdown file on my computer, back it up and all, that will keep track of on this date, I accomplished this, which is aligned to this job description of the job I want. And I'll keep notes because, I mean, honestly, our managers are people managers usually, and they have their own job, they have their own families or whatever. They're not 100% solely focused on my career path. That's on me. That's something that I have to do. And unfortunately, it's one of those guilty until proven innocent. I have to prove myself that I can do this next level job or I deserve this promotion because you know I'm keeping the documentations, I keep in the notes of how I am fitting in or filling this job description. So you really have to fight for yourself. I think that's I think that's absolutely right and I think that that kind of goes back to Charles's uh, question uh, of how do you measure this and 
And you can sometimes gauge the, the maturity of an organization by how they answer this question in an interview. Any reasonably sized organization that doesn't have descriptions of the levels is, is already sort of playing, they're kind of already in the hole. And so to, to Charles's direct question of like what metrics, I, I've had a lot of luck with sort of kind of coming from a two-pronged approach. But the thing that I like to do with these levels is to always focus on results and outputs rather than knowledge or ability. Um, and it seems really hard to do it first. But the example I like to give is, is we all know that we don't want engineers throwing, uh, you know, untested code at QA and having that go around and around and around and around. Well, that's a pretty easy thing to measure, right? That's an output-based thing. So you don't want to say like tests their own code. You know, you want to you want to talk about like the result of that, which is doesn't send code to QA that is obviously broken. Whereas, you know, if you say that you want a candidate or a, or a, a an employee to have you know strong computer science fundamentals, that's really difficult because five different people with computer science PhDs might have different opinions as to what a fundamental is, and how do you define that for the for the the employee. And I think that, uh, so for me, I think I look at a couple of things. One of them is throughput. And, and each company can define that in kind of their own ways. I like to focus on some unit of work. You can call it a user story or an epic or whatever it is in your, in your, your project management system. But the goal of it is to try to make those roughly the same size within some sort of tolerance. So somebody like trying to game the system is going to cut them up into smaller pieces and work on more of them, which is actually good, right? We want to deliver value faster and in smaller chunks to customers or to whoever the the end user is. As long as you sort of have a floor on that, where it's like, okay, no, we're not going to let you chop up this one one week story into 15 half-day stories. As long as there's some kind of floor on that to stop the actual gamification of it, uh, I think that makes sense. Um, And so looking at throughput is really important. I think looking at scope is important. So how how broad and how how many systems, how many different systems does this work touch? And then in I think another one that especially is valuable early on in debugging is talking about sort of at what layer can the engineer debug, right? For for entry level apprentice type people, I typically only expect them to be able to debug the actual physical the actual code that they themselves wrote. The minute it calls an external function or uses some other service totally fine if they don't know what to do at that point. But as somebody grows and moves up the ladder, I expect them to be able to dig into more things, to be able to open up that gem file and see what's in it and what might be going wrong. And and so sort of drawing some concentric circles around, like, where do you debug and and where where do you sort of get out of your depth and start struggling? Uh, I think there are a lot of things like that that you can put down on a list of results and outputs that a candidate or uh, an engineer might have, have... uh, skill in. And as long as you have this list and you publish it and you talk about it openly with, with the people on your teams, you will identify the places that are too ambiguous or too open to, to interpretation. And then as long as you're willing to iterate on that document, what you're really trying to do is build a shared understanding with all the people on your team of what is expected of somebody before we promote them from this level to that level. And therefore, what is expected of the people on that level in their day-to-day job? And I think that has like really, really great long-term effects, even though the upfront cost of building these job descriptions is actually kind of high. It's really hard to do well. But it's, I think it's another approach where you just have to take a chance, take a, take a swing at it, and then iterate as you go, um, hopefully without too many casualties along the way of people getting frustrated. By the way, um, I just want to throw in two things. One is, is that the things that Pete just outlined, 
are things that make for really good interview questions as well. You know, these kinds of things that you throw, you can throw these at people and see what they do. And, and a lot of times it's telling as much how they approach it as, as necessarily how they solve it. The other thing that I would throw out there is that some people are probably going to listen to this thinking, okay, how do I get past the interview? And with a lot of these kinds of things, it just takes practice. And so, you know, looking at a gem file, looking at the code base, doing the kinds of things that Pete's talking about, those are things that come with experience. And so go build a handful of projects, go contribute to a couple of other people's projects and go learn these skills. But it's going to take some time and it's going to take some practice. But the more of it you've done, the better off you're going to be when somebody throws this kind of thing at you in an interview. Yeah, one thing I would add on, on the end of all this is that I think for a company to be effective and good, they, they have to have these developer tiers or, or however they present that to the rest of the company. That needs to be defined first. And if it's not, I think it becomes somewhat apparent to the interviewee, even if you're interviewing as a junior, uh, you'll, you'll get a sense of just how ad hoc the interview is and how serious they've taken it, I think. Sometimes that becomes very evident uh, when you're interviewing with a company. And and frankly, if if the company doesn't have their act together, it, it, it might be a sign to look elsewhere. I think that's that's actually, uh, that could probably be it's an entirely, uh, it's an, its own podcast episode of on the candidate side, how do you interview the company? And one of the things that I always especially recommend more junior, more entry-level engineers to ask is, how many people in the past 12 months or pick a time range, how many people at the level I'm being considered for have been promoted to the next level? You know, has this happened before? And I think that's especially great if you are taking a non-development role or a kind of hybrid development role, say like a support engineer role or some other team, and you're hoping to move into development. A lot of companies will dangle that in front of people's face to try to get really talented people into their support engineering team, but they don't actually have a path for them to get out. Uh, And so making sure like, uh, you know, asking those questions, like it seems kind of rude, I think, when you're first interviewing and first going through these motions, but ask them like how how many people have you promoted and how long did it take them to get from point A to point B and sort of what can I expect my path to look like? It's easy to answer that last question, what could my path look like? It's much harder to cover up the fact that you've never actually promoted anybody from support to to dev. Yeah, again, I I should just hire you to uh, sell my book because yeah, I, I go into this as well. Know what you want and then ask the questions to figure that out. And if advancement is important to you and it will be at some point, then yeah, you got to ask those questions. How do you say at a job for 10 plus years? I think you're the only one here that's done that, <laughs> Dave. <laughs> I've made it five. I think the longest job I've had is this one. <laughs> and that's that's because uh, I'm the only boss I can tolerate at this point. I'm, I'm kind of curious before we wrap up, if there's just kind of a summary of points that we can give to people. Because we kind of talked our way around a lot of different things. And I'm wondering if there are like three or four main points that we can just give out to people who are interviewing other developers to hire them. And then a couple of points we can give out to people who are doing the interviews that are just kind of the main ideas that we've talked through. For me, uh, the takeaway from this conversation, I think, uh, I think we were all kind of on the same page with was as the interviewer, as the company doing the hiring, it is imperative that you know what you want. You have to know what it takes to be successful at your company. And I would sort of editorialize that to say that, that it is probably not going to be the list of 10 things that you come up with the first time you think about it. And you need to go ver- validate those things against the actual work that people are doing. 
Um, if you say that coding is the most important thing, but most of your developers spend 50% of their time in meetings with product, then, then you maybe need a different kind of person. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is when you're doing the interviews, the technical skills are important, but the fit for the company is more important. Yeah, and I would add, proofread your resume and make sure that it is accurate to some degree. Yeah, that's my takeaway. One, one thing I would add to the takeaway points, which I don't think we explicitly said, but I think is kind of the undercurrent of the entire conversation, at least how I feel, is that it is the interviewer's job to get the right information out of the candidate. It is also the candidate's job to give all the right information. But since the interviewer, since the company knows or should know what they're looking for, it then is your job as the interviewer to drive the conversation, to drive the interview to a place where you're getting good signal on the, on the traits and skills that you're looking for. Um, I think that if you as an interviewer walk out of the interview and you're like, well, I just, I just don't know. Like, I just don't know how they stack up against these skills then I think you have failed in that interview. It's not the candidate's fault that you didn't know how to get them to share the information. And, you know, we all fail. I mean, I've had interviews like that in the past six months uh, where I just couldn't get there. So, um, but I think that that's kind of like the undercurrent of this whole talk of, of, you know, if you have to know what you want, then you have to know how to get it out of the person. And it's your job to get it out of the person, not your job to sit there passively while they hopefully tell you everything you want to hear. Plus one. What about for people who are interviewing? I think one of the big takeaways there was just don't be afraid to ask questions to find out if the company matches what you need or you want. I, I think also uh, don't be afraid to ask for, be prepared for the answer to be no, but don't be afraid to ask for accommodations. If, you, if, if, somebody, if somebody says, hey, uh, we do live coding. And if you know that you don't do well on live coding questions, it doesn't hurt to say like, hey, I've really struggled with live coding in the past. I don't think it's a good representation of my skill as a developer. Is it possible to do a take-home test instead? Is it possible for me to have some time early in the interview for me to work on it by myself and then show it to somebody else? Even companies that don't have that as a, excuse me, as a normal part of their process, sometimes they will be willing to make some accommodations for you because they are looking for a good signal. And so being, being willing to ask for these things, it is I, 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 don't, I can't think of a single company that if you ask for that, they would say, okay, then we just don't want to interview you. That's Big fair. Problem. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is if you, if you are going to ask for those kinds of accommodations, then you need to make sure that you really knock it out of the park as far as their ability to follow it, right? Because if somebody looking over your shoulder throws your game off, then make sure that your get commits are on point that all of the information is really easy to follow so that they can kind of follow. Because what they're looking for is, yeah, they're looking for that signal, right? They're looking for that read on how you work. And so if they can get it out of your Git commit messages, they can get it out of your code, they can get it out of, you know, the things that they're going to look at and get a good read on it, then they'll come away going, you know, this is the kind of outcome we're looking for anyway. And yeah, he was right to have us not throw him off his game or her game. I think the other, the other point that I would bring out is, is kind of uh, what a couple of people have mentioned already, which is some of these skills are, and I think this is a flaw in the process, but I think it's an unavoidable one to some degree, is that some of, the, some of what we're measuring in any of these interviews is actually interview skill. And it shouldn't be, I don't think, um, but it just sort of naturally is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so practice with interviews. I think that especially early in your career, uh, being willing to take interviews, even when you think you're happy in a company, A, you might get an offer that you weren't expecting for way more than you thought you were going to get for a position that you really didn't yourself think you were ready for yet. But also it's going to keep you sort of in the loop and understanding what the market is and it'll keep your skills sharp because 
you know, if you do, if you do get your first job and then stay in it for three or four years, like you might be a little, a little rusty when it comes time for your next uh, interview. Yeah. To that end, if you're actually, you know, on the job hunt, it, it might behoove you to, to interview at a, a few companies uh, that you're not too passionate about initially uh, before you go after the one that you really are hoping to get. Yep. The other trick that I've seen is that if you know somebody who works for the company that you want to work at and knows the kinds of interviews that they do, but isn't the person who's going to do the interview, once you get the interview lined up, have them run you through an interview first. And then the other thing, and I put this in on, uh, and, and Pete's mentioned it a few times, but I put this on um, in the book as far as uh, researching companies is go look and see how the company talks about themselves on LinkedIn and go look and see how their former employee, employers, employees sorry, talk about them on Glassdoor. And then Glassdoor, as he said, has a lot of the interview questions and things like that. And even if that's not exactly the question you're going to get asked, it's usually the kind of thing that they're going to go after. And so go bone up on that. Make sure you know it real well. Go practice it. Go build something with it. And that way, when you show up and they ask you a question about a particular technique or library or something like that, you can not only say, oh, yeah, this is how it works, but you can also say, I built XYZ with it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, before we do that, though, Pete, if people want to follow you online, where do they find you? That's a good point. Yeah, so they can uh, they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at too much Pete on Twitter. You can follow me on GitHub, but uh, I don't do a lot of open source work right now. So Twitter is probably the place to be. Nice. Hey, folks, I want to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. That's Cloud 66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy, and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud 66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano, pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean, it really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus, all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud 66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told it I had a Rails app and off it went. It set it all up, it does the deployment, and now that I have other developers working with me on PodWrench, which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access and then they can go push the button for me and it gets deployed. It's really nice, it's straightforward, it has all of my environment variables in it, so I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps, and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code RubyRogues. That's all one word, capital R, capital R, RubyRogues, for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com. All right, well, let's do some picks. Andrew, you want to start us off with picks today? Sure. So recently I saw that the, uh, if any of you guys have ever used the Rails ERD gem, I love it. And it recently got some updates for Rails 6. And not too long ago, I, I gave a couple diagrams that I generated from here to our business intelligence team. And the amount of value that they said it generated for them, being able to actually visually see their relationships was huge that, and they have now had me generate diagrams for all of our projects. So I think it's really helpful, Jim, especially if you're a visual person like me. So if you've never checked it out before, you should, you should check it out. Trying to remember what uh, ERD stands for. It's entity relations, some diagram. Okay. Yep. Just, just so people know, do you want to just give people like the, the two second version of what an ERD is so that they understand? 
It generates a, like you said, an entity relationship diagram for your Rails. It basically shows how your tables in your database are related to one another. Like this table belongs to this one and you can see on, it generates a PDF where you can see like, okay, my user has many projects and it'll have your users table with an error pointing to the projects and you can see um, foreign keys, um, which are like dashed lines and there's tons and tons of settings you can configure for it. So just to show the relationships of your data. Awesome. Nate, what are your picks? So I've got a, a, just one pick, maybe two kind of related ones. Um, and the hype has died down around Hamilton, the musical. But I'm not sure how many people are aware that Hamilton actually has an app that you can install on your phone and play their lottery. If you win the Hamilton lottery, you will get uh, either the first row or second row tickets for $10 or a Hamilton per ticket. It's uh, it's pretty fantastic. And my family, when when the when it was playing in Las Vegas, my family won the lottery. My wife won it, and we bought a, an extra ticket. And went down uh, me and one, my wife and one of my daughters, and we continued to play the lottery while it was down there. And we won a second time. So I'm just not sure if the lottery wasn't uh, something that people were aware of in the area, but. Uh, yeah, we won it twice. And so I, I got to see Hamilton the Musical uh, on stage in Vegas, once in the front row and once in the second row. So it's pretty fantastic. And the musical itself, if you haven't listened to it, is is amazing. Highly, highly recommended. Nice. That's one of the things I want to go see, but just haven't quite made it to yet. Dave, what are your picks? All right. So my first pick is inspired from Andrew's pick, and it's called Plant UML. So it's a syntax where you're able to generate sequence diagrams. So I have an extension on VS Code that I use, and it supports the plant UML. And it allows me to draw out right there in my markdown some really nice sequence diagrams for basically request flows of how an action works and all that good stuff. And my second pick is a really stupid one. I haven't purchased this yet, but I'm planning a trip to the ocean, and I just don't know how bad of an idea this is going to be. But they make this attachment that can go onto your cordless drill that has a propeller that you can essentially get an inflatable raft, get your drill you know, with a battery pack, and then just hop on the water with this thing and turn your little crappy raft into a little trolling speedboat. So it just looks really intriguing to try. I just don't know how well that's going to work. Please take a video. That sounds terrifying. I need one. <laughs> All right, I'm going to throw in a few picks of my own. So I keep mentioning the book. Uh, you can get it at getacoderjob.com. I have changed the title. It is now Find Your Dream Coder Job. And uh, the reason is, is because initially I was writing it for new developers. But as I started talking to more and more people, I'm finding that experienced people, you know, anywhere from a year or two's worth of experience all the way up the chain, find that they can't quite find the job that makes them happy. And so, um, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff in there for newer folks, boot camp grads, etc. But then there's other stuff in there for people who are, you know, have been in a job for a year or so and don't feel like they're advancing. You know, some of the things that we talked about as far as retention goes. You're not getting that stuff. You've talked to your boss. It's not getting anywhere. So you're like, okay, where do I find a, a place that will actually give me what I want? And so it, it walks you through all that, figuring out what you want, um, 
basically researching companies to see as far as you can if they match up with that and then going in for an interview and just verifying that and then making sure that you match with what they need. So, uh, and then, you know, negotiating salary and all that stuff's in there too. And it talks a lot about some of the bad practices that go on in interviews. In fact, there are a couple of things in there that say, I essentially say, I don't think this is productive, but it's the way it's done. (laughs) And so, but then it talks to you about how to do the research, how to level up in those areas and how to practice so that some of those things work. One of the examples is whiteboard coding, which is terrible and I hate, but it's, it's just like, look, you, you just have to get good at it. And the only way to get good at it is to practice it. So, you know, make somebody, you know, sit down and watch you do it. Tell them to be as critical as possible and just see how far you get. And that's just one of the tips in there that I put. But th- there's a lot there that goes into finding the kind of job that you want. So anyway, get a coderjob.com. Um, I'm hoping to have it up on Amazon within the next week or so. I, I just have to finish essentially the back cover. So in fact, I'm actually looking for testimonials as well. And this will go out in a week from when we record this. So if this helped you at all, just send me an email with a short testimonial about how I've helped you because that's what I'm looking to put on the back of the book. And so you can just say, hey, Chuck's advice helped me you know, understand better how to get the kind of job that I want or something like that. And then talk about maybe one or two of the points that came out of this episode that really helped you out. That, that would help me out. So, And then the other thing I wanted to shout out about is Everywhere RB. I think I mentioned that last time. But yeah, I'm working on pulling together an online users group sort of setup where people can come collaborate. You can ask questions. You can get clarification on ideas. Um, you, and, and basically, it's there to help you stay current and level up. So that's, that's kind of the focus there. And I kind of want to shout out a thanks to Andrew because he went and tested it out and pointed out a couple issues that were there on the page that I managed to get fixed. So that was great. Pete, what are your picks? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I have not yet found a gem to make you a better uh, interviewer. Um, However, uh, tangentially, I've got a couple of books that I I think are really great for new managers uh, and and experienced managers. Uh, The first one is uh, The Manager's Path by Camille Fournier. She's... uh, uh, the book is fantastic and it really takes you through all the way through sort of your team lead role all the way up through sort of the CTO of a big company. It's really, really fascinating. And it really helps you even as a, a as an individual contributor, I think it can help you understand what the people on the levels higher in the organization are, what their jobs are and why they might be behaving in the ways that they're behaving, which might seem counterintuitive at first. The second one I don't know how you all feel, feel about swears, but uh, the second book is How Effed Up Is Your Management? Uh, and that's by uh, Melissa Nightingale, Jonathan Nightingale. There's some profanity in that one. Uh, and that's more of an organizational sort of like, how do you know if you have good engineering management at your company? Really, really valuable for engineering leaders. And the third one, I don't, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is weird, but there is a... Uh, uh, one of my favorite conference speakers does a lot of talking, uh, a lot of speaking about um, interview skills and, and interpersonal skills and communication skills. And her name is Jennifer Tu, Jennifer Tu, and she uh, she has some talks up on Confreaks. But if you uh, so, I would go check those out. And if you ever happen to see her in the conference lineup, make some time to go to those talks. They're super super interesting. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Pete. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciated the conversation and uh, um, gave, me some, gave me some new things to think about as well. Awesome. Well, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more. <laughs>